We want to talk this morning about Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our topic, and I guess I would ask the question, is there any better topic to have a, as a final message for in this series about Jesus is? I don't know of anything any better right now. I'm enthused about it. I hope that we can stay alert and uh, see what the Lord has to say. We're here to finish up our little dissertation, our series, and I want to say that from my perspective, this is a has been just a bit difficult for me to do this justice in an hour or so. Uh, really, all we can do right now is just give a brief snippet of God's glory and His majesty and His power. The Bible is replete with this. But we are going to try to do just a little bit as the time we have here today. So, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19... We'll read one verse to get us started off. <clears throat> that verse says, verse 16 of Revelation 19, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again we approach thy throne. We know that we are here for the right cause, the right purpose, and yet we feel like we are in sacred territory. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, all of us, that you would manifest the presence of your Spirit among us. Pray especially that you would come and anoint this message so that we can Rejoice in Christ our Savior, knowing just a little bit more about Him, and we will never, never know it all. We thank You, Father, for what You have done in the past. We thank You for answered prayers. We're thinking of yesterday. We thank You for the seed that has been sown. We trust that some of it, anyway, may find fertile ground and grow and bring forth fruit. Thank You for the opportunities that we have to share Your message of hope with others because there are so many people that lack hope. So we ask, Father, for you to be with us. Continue to guide us each and every day. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start this morning by asking a question. Oh, by the way, by the way, somebody, somebody said, bless you God bless you to be a blessing today, brother. You know who you are. Thank you for this little handwritten note. That's very special. I'd like to start by asking a question, and I don't really assume that you know the answer. It's a bit of a trivia question, but I have a purpose behind it. The question is, do you have any, any idea how many times the title Lord of Lords is recorded in Scripture? Has anybody researched that? It's five times in all of Scripture. And two of those times are in the Old Testament. And the reference there is to Jehovah God. The other three times are recorded in the New Testament. And um, they always talk about Jesus Christ. 
Now then, the second half of this is, do you have any idea how many times King of Kings is recorded in Scripture? That happens to be six. There's three in the Old Testament. Ezra refers to Artaxerxes as the King of Kings. Ezekiel refers to Tyrus as the King of Kings. Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the King of Kings. The other three references are all, again, in the New Testament. And here's the punchline. We want to look at all of those, but the major difference between the Old and the New Testament references is that in all cases in the New Testament, all three references of King of Kings, it's also connected to Lord of Lords. There's a connection there. They're not just isolated over here. So the question I have, when you hear the term King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is there something else that flashes into your mind about that statement? The first thing that comes to my mind is the word all. He is King of all kings. He is Lord of all lords. The Bible would have us to understand that. It doesn't really say it here, but it infers it. King of kings, Lord of lords. He is king of all. There's one no, no one higher. There's no one with more power. There's no one with greater majesty. There's no one with more glory. And you could go on and on with all of the adjectives ad infinitum. There's no one. He is the absolute greatest. The pinnacle. Sovereign over all. This God that we serve. Now the struggle I have this morning in, in talking about this for a little while, here we are talking about a sovereign, holy, majestic, perfect God, and you could put a lot of adjectives in there, all powerful, and I have a struggle because I recognize the fact that we as human beings are so frail and fickle, and yet we are proposing to stand here and talk about this all-powerful God, this great and faithful one, the highest of the high. I think it's kind of a dilemma, really, when we think about what we're about to do. And yet, we, we, know, we know that we're supposed to do this. It's not a problem here, because God wants us to share all that we can about himself, his person, his kingdom, and all of that. That's what's been taking place here for starting this is the fifth day. So we're doing the right thing. He is in approval of all of this, and yet at the same time, I feel that we are somewhat standing on holy ground. And we don't want to violate that in any way. There's a hymn in our, you'll recognize this, I think. There's a hymn in our little black hymnal that we chase, take to church every Sunday morning. Hymn number 71. The poet kind of felt the same way and expressed, he expressed it like this. The poet said in that hymn, How shall dust, referring to you and I, How shall dust his worth declare when angels try in vain? Their faces veil when they appear before the Son of Man. That poet felt the same kind of thing. How, as, how can we as just preachers made out of dust give God appropriate recognition? And so this morning, the challenge we have is to try to bring this holy God into focus without 
blurring His beauty or tarnishing His majesty. It's obvious we can't go up high enough to be with Him. Not now. We can't do that. We can't get in there in the kingdom where He is. So in a sense, and understand what I'm saying, we have to try to bring Him down to our finite understanding. And we want to do that properly. We want our view of Him to be without desecrating in any way or demeaning Him. We're trying to address this infinite God in finite terms that you and I understand. And so, that's a bit of a challenge. I hope you get the picture. Uh, I think it's a rather daunting task. And so what we're going to do for the most part, we're going to try to let His Word tell us what it says about our God. And we can, again, I've probably said it before, you can let your imaginations wander and you won't outthink God. Let's start this little lesson this morning by looking at Revelation chapter 14. <clears throat> Ultimately, we'll get back to the verse we read a while ago. Revelation chapter, did I say 14? I meant 17. Revelation 17, I want to look at verse 14. <clears throat> this is one instance, the use of this term, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Verse 14 says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, the greater context of this passage of Scripture tells us that this Almighty God is in fact going to prevail over all of His enemies. All. No one excluded. He will subdue all rebellion. He will utterly destroy them, not because He is capricious or whimsical, not because He just wants to flex His muscles and show us how powerful He is, but it, when He destroys His enemies, it is because He is to render appropriate judgment and punishment upon all who have profaned His holy name in various ways throughout the millennia, and, important point, and taught others to do likewise. You'll see where I'm going with this shortly. This Almighty God will not, will not be mocked or profaned forever. And those who persist in doing so will be punished by His hand at his disposition. The subject of his wrath, as we look at this 14th verse, is back in verse 5, just ahead of this, where it talks about Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. There is an entity, is about the best way I can think of saying it, there is an entity without putting any names on it. There is an entity that promotes idolatrous worship, which in fact robs God of His glory. It's called spiritual fornication. There is an entity that does this, and it subsequently gives birth to all manner of abominable offspring which are detested by God and expressly forget, forbidden by His Word. 
and yet depraved mankind continues, continues, and even accelerates their program of kicking sand in the face of God. Now, if you wish to read the entire chapter of Revelation 17, and I would say 18 as well, in your leisure time, I would certainly encourage you to do that. It talks about God's judgment on the ungodly. You can do that at your leisure. It's not really our mission today to try to explain everything in Revelation, nor could we do that. But there are lots of images, there are lots of important illustrations in the book of Revelation, especially as, as they apply to the holiness and the majesty of God, and I would encourage you to do that. Verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, verse, chapter 17, I want to read these, and then now what I have said might come into a little better focus. Uh, seven, chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit unto the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and, and the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. John attempts to paint a picture to us of a false religious system. A system that is anti-God and is devoid of God. They may, sometimes, they may give some kind of lip service to God but it's in the wrong way, and it is by no means, no way, accepted by God. And yet they are religious, quotation marks. They're worshiping something. So I think the, we, could, we could probably go several places and suggest, well, maybe it's this or this or this, and I'm not going to do that. You can, you can do that in your mind, but I do want to point out one thing. They worship something, so what is it? I want to suggest to you that at least one thing is humanism today, the God of self. Look around, see what all's going on. People don't need God, that's what they think. But the God of humanism, it's very popular today. Evolution, abortion, homosexuality, all kinds of perversion. All of those things, and more beside, all of those things fly in the very face of God. They are clearly dealt with in Holy Scripture. They are an abomination to God. And society does not want God to interfere in their race towards nihilism. They don't want Him to interfere. I kind of covered a couple of things here in the past that fit in, but historically, I think I kind of said this in a different way, but historically, moral depravity in a society 
always leads to destruction of that civilization. It's happened many, many times over the course of history. And to me, it's absolutely amazing how that we have intelligent minds, supposedly, and it seems like the only thing that we really learn from history is the fact that we don't learn from history. And we make the same mistakes over and over again. Not you and I, well, we do sometimes in our lives, but I'm talking about the world at large. They read the history books and say, we can improve on that. We're going to take care of that. We can do it ourselves. No, don't work that way. Verses 7 through 13 in this chapter, I don't think we'll read them. I'm just going to give you a brief sketch. John continues his description in prophetic imagery of various beasts and kings, all of which have a specific purpose. There's a reason for all of that. And then he refers to the seven mountains where this vile woman dwells. I'm going to say probably Rome, probably we could talk about it. And then he also refers to the beast, which is probably the Antichrist. And then he comes to verse 14, which we read to you just a little while ago. Again, we read it. And these shall make war with the Lamb, these being what we told you about the beasts and all of that, the imagery ahead of it. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Amen. He is this, as you start out reading this, you would think about a helpless little lamb. Not anymore. He is the, he is the sovereign of the universe. Who is the Lamb? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord of lords and King of kings? Amen. So who is with him? There's three, people, three classes. The called, the chosen, the faithful. Well, that's kind of interesting. I want to suggest to you, or I want to ask you first, do you think we fit in there any place? I think we do. I really do. Uh, it would be my understanding that, first of all, all men and women, all men and women are the called Yes, He has called Israel in a special way. They are His chosen people. He has never given up on them, nor will He. All the rest of the earth is called. They have an opportunity for salvation. That's my point. They have an opportunity. There were a few more people yesterday that maybe for the first time in their life had an opportunity to go home and think about this. Maybe there is something to this after all. So there, everybody has an opportunity for salvation. The gospel has gone out. And everybody can have faith in Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, what about some of the indigenous tribes way down here? And they don't even have any Bible. Understand that. But God is a gracious God. He's, he's just in all things. Romans chapter 1 would tell us that, that nature itself in the instinct of man, nature tells man that there's got to be somebody that's higher than I. A nature, basic instinct is man, in man is, is that we want to worship somebody greater than myself. And so that's why they carve out idols and all of that. And so God is going to take care of those people who maybe don't have a Bible, never have heard about Jesus Christ. That's in His hands. But basically I say everyone's called. Problem is, not everybody responds in a positive way. 
And so then, the chosen are those who do respond to the call in a, in a positive way. They say, yes, Lord. They choose to follow the Lord Jesus, and therefore they are now included in His family of believers, the church, the bride, His wife. And so the chosen are, are the ones who have chosen to follow Him, and the faithful then are those who continue with Him and in Him through all the various trials of life. I think we could probably all think of someone that we believe has renounced their faith in Jesus Christ. I know two people in my life who have, they were strong believers at one point in time, and now then they say, mm, I don't know. I don't know whether it's worth it or not. I don't think I believe it. Um, various discussions about that, but that happens. And beloved, we want to be faithful. We, we are not promised an easy road. There is no place in this Word of God that says once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, hey, Savior, it's all going to be all honey, no bees, and a life full of ease. It doesn't happen that way. You're going to have problems. You're going to have trials. But we are promised strength for the day and light for the way. We are promised that. And we can meet those challenges on a moment-by-moment -moment basis as we give our life in service to the Lord. Someday, the goal here, the goal is that someday we are going to be with Him when He comes to conquer His enemies. Praise the Lord. We want to be in that throne. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, let's go to Revelation 19, just across the page for me. Verses 1 through 5, I want to read those. Again, it starts out after these things. And so you're going to have to read, spend a little bit of time reading chapter 17 and 18 and see what these things are. But it's more of what I just kind of described to you that there's a battle going on, there's a conflict, there's kings and all of this kind of thing. And you, you'll see what I'm talking about when you read it. But, but verses nine, uh, 1 through 5 in chapter 19 say, And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, for He hath judged the great whore, which, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of her servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God! all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. After these things, I told you what it's talking about, some things that all, it just goes into greater detail and tells you all the struggles that's taken place there. The prior two chapters would, would shed a lot of light on that. But we find out when we come to these five verses in Revelation 19 now that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords has subdued His enemies. He has accomplished that. And now it says that there are much people in heaven praising God. Much. Do you have an idea what kind of quantity that is? I don't know. 
But I'll try to explain that in just a moment when we get a little farther along. Much people praising God and they're saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, power unto the Lord our God. They are praising Him for destroying the great harlot and avenging the blood of their fellow martyred sister and brother. The saints that have been martyred for this false religious, by this false religious system. It's been going on for millennia. Still happens today. And God is going to avenge those innocent lives. Beloved, this is no funeral dirge we hear going on here. There's no mourning here at all. It's a time for celebration. Jesus Christ has been victorious. And they're celebrating that. And it's going to get even better. The Lamb is victorious and there's a great celebration coming. They are worshiping God who is sitting on His throne and they are saying, Amen, Hallelujah. That means, so be it. Praise God. Just a side note on the word Hallelujah. It's, it's only written four times like this in the Bible. There's only four uses and it's right here in Revelation where we are today. And it's, to me, it's, I, I just got curious. I don't know, I get curious bent on some of these things, so I look it up. But it, it, it's a combination of two Hebrew words, halal and jah, which means, halal, halal means praise, jah is a kind of a shortened verse of Yahweh or Jehovah. We have transliterated it. So really what it's saying is, hallelujah is saying, praise God. It's what it's saying. Now then, in our English language, and you will find this in the Word many times, in our English language, we, for some reason, take and put an H in front of it and an H on the end of it, and we call it hallelujah. Same word. We have just chosen, somebody has chosen to do that. Verses 6 through 8 of Revelation 19. And I heard, as it were, I'm, I'm building up to this, this uh, 16th Verse for where it talks about King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. John is now describing a time of joy and excitement like never before. I think everyone here has been to weddings in the past multiple times. You know what weddings are all about. It's a time of great joy and celebration. But may I say to you that you've never seen a wedding like this. You never have. Our weddings are pretty tame compared to what this is going to be like. Have you ever heard the voice of a great multitude? A great multitude. Remember it said a little while ago, much people. Now it's saying great multitude. The only way I can get close to putting a number, try to put a value on this, we would read in Revelation chapter 5 where it says in there, there is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, we don't want to get too abstract here, but all you have to do is multiply 10,000 times 10,000, and you come up with 100 million real quick. And that's not all. It says, and thousands of thousands. That's a pretty ambiguous term. I don't know what it means. 
but I can guarantee you there's a hundred million plus. You talk about surround sound. You can't put a hundred million people in front of you. They're going to have to be all the way around. And they're praising God. That's amazing. And they're saying, the voice sounds like many waters. It sounds like mighty thunders. All in unison saying, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I can't imagine what that would be like. We saw a lot of people yesterday. A lot of people. Wasn't many compared to 100 million. But you think about a football stadium. 60,000 people. Why? Mere pittance. 100 million. You've never seen something like this, and you won't see it until you get there. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the wedding feast is about to take place. The bride has made herself ready. And I ask you, who's the bride? That's right. And so we know that. We, we, we've learned that. We're not trying to be repetitive, but the church, all who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, all who have confessed their sins and their need of salvation in Him, it's the church. Jew, Gentile, red, yellow, black, white. Everyone has an opportunity to come to Him in faith believing. This now, this is the culmination of God's carefully planned and precisely orchestrated plan of redemption for lost mankind. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and His church is the bride. What a time of celebration it's going to be for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We read in here, it was verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The mention of fine linen, clean and white, has a special significance, maybe two of them. Number one, fine linen signifies it's expensive clothing. It's not just a rough cloth that the common people of the day wore. We have nice, comfortable clothes to wear. My shirt doesn't chafe my back. Your dress doesn't scratch your shoulders. It's nice cloth. But in those days, when this was written, there was fine linen for the, for the wealthy people, luxurious clothing. It felt nice. It was comfortable. The common people wore rough cloth, and it was kind of irritating sometimes. That's the best they could do. We're promised fine linen here. I think it's expensive clothing. It's the clothing that only the wealthy could afford. And the price of Jesus Christ that He paid on the cross of Calvary was His precious blood, the most expensive thing ever. He bought our clothing with His blood. And it says it was clean and white. He is clean and white. That signifies purity. That's pretty easy to understand. But notice carefully. It's fine linen. It's clean and white. And that pure white garment that you are wearing isn't what you have gone down to even J.C. Penney's or Nordstrom's or any other place. You haven't bought it yourself. You didn't pay for it. It's not, it's not anything you work to get. It's what the Lord Jesus has provided for you and He has arrayed you in it. He has dressed you. He has put his, this garment on you and He clothes us with His righteousness. Philippians 
chapter 3, verse 19, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. He has clothed us with his righteousness. It's the only thing we'll meet the standard. It's fine linen, it's clean and white. Now one other note about this fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. <clears throat> we understand this, just kind of recapping here, but our righteousness, our deeds, our acts, what we would do in no way justify us before God. We understand that. Uh, Isaiah makes that abundantly clear. We are not, we cannot be saved by what we do. We cannot win God's approval we, by pointing out our merits. We don't have any. No matter how good we do or how much we serve other men, that does not register. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and our faith in the power of His cleansing blood. Therefore, there is a place for our deeds. There is indeed. The righteous deeds that we perform are simply a testimony to the fact that we do believe and that we have been saved and that we serve a living God. We are willing to. It's a love service. We don't feel like we're being kicked out of bed every morning and we've got to go back to work and serve the Lord. That's terrible. We serve Him because we love Him. I don't take the first cup of coffee to Becky in the morning because I'm afraid of her or I'm afraid she's going to get angry if I don't. I do that because I love her. I want to. It's a thing with us. It's gotten to be kind of a ritual. I just do that. And I love to. I, I want her to know that I love her and, and I'm willing to serve her. And that's the way we serve the Lord Jesus. This is not a drudgery. We do it joyfully. We want to. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. We have already established the, the, the point that the bride is the church. We understand that. We talked about the called back a while ago. I think this is a different called group of people right here. It says they which are called in this context right here. I would like to suggest to you, and I'm open for criticism, I would like to suggest to you, these called, in this instance, are probably the Old Testament saints. The bride, the church, is, is, is there, and every wedding has guests. If the, if the church, if you and I are the bride, we're not sitting out there as guests, we're His bride, so where's the guests come from? I'd like to suggest that maybe it's the Old Testament saints. They're coming to the wedding feast too. They were not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ in the age of grace like you and I, but they're invited to the wedding feast. They have had their faith in Almighty God. Open for criticism. See what you think about it. Um, and then it says, and these are the true sayings of God. Very simple. You can take this to the bank. This is what God is telling us. You can depend upon it. Now then, verse 10 is a bit interesting to me. It says, and I fell at his feet, this, <clears throat> this uh, voice and this angel that was talking to him. I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
very interesting, very interesting. John fell down to worship this angel. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he was overcome in the emotion of all of this. After all, he's seen some pretty dramatic things here. I don't know how you or I would respond in, in all of this panorama of stuff that he's seeing. And maybe just in his weakness and emotion, he fell down to worship this being and at the feet of him. And, the, and this angel says, don't do it. Get up. Don't worship me. I'm a created being the same as you are. And we both worship God. And, and I think there's a lesson for us there that we want to we take it seriously. And that lesson is that our total allegiance, our total allegiance is to the Most High God and we worship Him alone. How many figures can you think of in the entertainment world that are essentially worshipped by adoring crowds, cheering, clapping, idolizing entertainment and sports figures and all that? It's rampant. No, we don't do that. We worship God alone. That's where our allegiance is. Only He is worthy of praise and honor and worship. He tells us very plainly in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now you and I can't be jealous because we overdo it. We don't know how to be jealous, and so we have to stay away from it entirely. God can be jealous because as we... As we know, that even his jealousy is perfect. That is to say, he never steps across the line of righteous jealousy. You and I don't know where that line is. We can't go there. God is a jealous God, and rightfully so. It's okay. He knows where the line is. Now, John has been describing the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. But there is still work to do on planet Earth while that marriage supper has taken place. And this is where Jesus then comes down to earth in power and great glory. It's not the rapture. The rapture has already taken place some seven years prior. This is now the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming down in power and glory with His saints. And this is when He destroys the remnants of His enemies after the tribulation period so that He can, in fact, bind Satan and set up His proper kingdom, Jesus Christ's proper kingdom, without interference from Satan and his demons. We're living in a corrupted world, and we have to deal with all of that stuff. But it's going to come a time when Jesus will, in fact, purge all of that, and it'll be like it's supposed to be. Now, I'm not going to try to explain in detail. I can't do it anyway, but I want you to get a mental picture of this conquering King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who we are here trying to extol and exalt today. The very first time He came, He came as a babe in a manger. You understand that. You know about that. He grew to manhood. He died on the cross as a suffering servant to redeem us. He's not coming back as a, sec as a suffering servant the second time. He will now come as a conquering King, and that's what we're reading about today. He will return as a conquering king. A man of war who is focused with only one purpose, and that purpose is to completely overthrow Satan and his ungodly kingdom forever. Forever. Talked about for, uh, 
Anthony talked about forever this morning. He is here to do this forever. Now then, let's read verses 11 through 16 and try to visualize this as best we can. And you're going to have to let your mind get a little creative and, and turn your imagination loose. But, but try to get a mental picture of some of this, if you will. It doesn't matter how big or how grand you, you go. It's bigger than that. Uh, verses 11 through 16 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened. Wow. Heaven opened? Um... Was there a divide here and it just kind of parted? Maybe. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. We can neither judge righteously nor can we make war righteously. We don't know how to do that. God does. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's got the right to do that. Because he is here to crush his enemies, those who have rejected him, those who have blasphemed him, those who have taught others to do the same under their false religious system. Verse 12, his eyes, picture this, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. I would like to suggest to you that's not his blood. This time it's his enemy's blood. He shed his blood once. And he is now wearing a vesture that's pure and clean. Except for his enemy's blood that he is stomping out. And he's getting rid of and he's destroying. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the conquering king. And all you can do, and all I can do, to try to visualize this as best I can and say hallelujah. That's my king. He is going to be victorious over all. This is the one and only king of kings. This is the one and only Lord of lords. Remember I said king of all kings, Lord of all lords. From this time on, he will never be mocked. He will never be scorned. He will never be re rebuked or rejected. But he will be worshipped by all creatures forever and ever. Can I have an amen? amen. He will be worshipped, rightfully so. So my question at this point to you is, have you begun to get just a little picture of this blessed Savior, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords? I feel like the best I can do in all of this, I can see a snapshot here, but there's way, way more that's out of the field of view and way more that's behind. I can't see it all. But what I see is exciting. And I hope it's exciting for you. It is exciting. He will be worshipped. And there really isn't any way I can think of to describe him to you except to say, read your Bible. 
Look for these phrases. I would encourage you in, in your quiet time of home, start reading through Revelation as a result of this little study here we've, we've done this week. Now, I don't expect you to understand all the imagery and all the, the sometimes pretty bizarre stuff that's going on. Don't worry about that. Read to find out about the majesty of our Savior, what His glory is all about, and His power. And you'll be astounded. It's amazing. The Bible is all about Him, cover to cover. It's His plan. It's His power. It's His love. And I can try with these brethren. We can help each other. We can try to prime the pump a little bit once in a while in your mind with, with a few scriptures that point us in the right direction. But that's all we can do. We can just help to encourage you to look for more. I want to I go to Psalm 104, the first five, five verses of that, and try to show you just a little bit more about this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. There, for a moment I thought somebody took Psalms out of my Bible, but I found it. <laughs> Psalm 104, first five verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, we're talking about the same one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Get a picture here. Who coverest Thyself with light as with the garment. Now that's interesting. He covers Himself with light. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. And it goes on from there. That's enough to, to get you started. That's the king of kings. That's who we're talking about. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire, one of His other attributes. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says, and this is a paraphrase of Psalm 43, and I like this. It says that this King of kings, this Lord of lords, it says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But here's the important part. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, I take that a step farther and I say that, okay, if his face is against the evil, where is his face? Probably looking at the righteous. He's watching over you and I. I like that. He's not, he's got, his face is turned away from those who are doing evil and he's looking toward us. That means he's watching over me. I can use that and so can you. So now then, we're going to have to wind down. I'm going to say, how can we bring this all together? Not just today, not just what we've been learning today, but this whole five days. We've got a little more to go. But how can we begin to take something home with us that's going to hopefully guide our lives and prosper our walk with Him? Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, please? <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 6. This is the last use in the New Testament, or the last for us today, 
the third use, I'll put it that way, of the term King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I saved it for last for a reason. I want to read this, um, verses 11 and 12, 1 Timothy 6. Now think about this, as we read this, I'm not going to make a lot of comments about it, but this is for your own study, for this is your own work. Think about this in the context of what we have been learning here for five days and how we're going to go home, how we're going to apply it. Verse 11, But thou, O man of God, thou, O woman of God, flee these things. Now then we could go back and look at these things prior chapter 6. Whenever, there, whenever the Bible says these things, you really need to find out what they are because it's different each time or a lot of times. So it'll tell you very plainly, these things are the ungodly ways. That's what it's telling you prior verses. So it says, but thou, O man and O woman of God, flee these things and what? Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Follow after righteousness, goodness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Does that sound easy to anyone? It's not. I wish I could tell you. It's a snap. Because you've got the Lord on your side. Yeah. No, I'd be lying. It's not easy. But it can be done. That's the good part. It can be done, and you have to choose, like David told us this morning. You have to choose to follow those things. No, I choose to do the right thing. Every morning I get up, I have set the Lord before my face always. And that's what I'm going to do this day of my life. Verses um, 13 through 16. Paul says to Timothy, I give thee charge. I am giving you a special responsibility. I am investing in you. I am giving you a charge in the sight of God who quickeneth, who brings all things to life. And before Christ Jesus, who? Before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good, good confession. And here's the charge that thou keep this commandment. What commandment is that? Well, back up here to follow those things, which follow after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and meekness. Let's do the same. Keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate. That means a person of authority, a person of power, a ruler, and in this case is the supreme potentate, one who has the good of his people in, in mind, not for any selfish decisions of any kind, but it's for the benefit of the people, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 16 says that this King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, he lives to die no more, he dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. Does that sound familiar to you? We read in Psalm 104 just a little bit ago that he's covered with light. And this is the light that no man can approach unto. We can't even get close to that. It's blinding. Whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. 
He covers himself with light as a garment. You know, we cannot, we simply cannot comprehend the magnitude of these statements when we meditate on them and try to get a mental picture. And, but when we do, when we do, it is then that we begin to get a sense of his glory and his majesty and his power and his awesome presence among us. And when you do that, that's still only the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot more below the surface that you don't, that you don't see. God will reveal a little bit here and there as you go along, but you'll never see the whole thing, not till we get there in glory. He is far greater than we can imagine. And, and, and the, the thought occurred to me as I was saying that, that when we, when we look at His power, His glory, His majesty through faith, we talk about Him being eternal, we talk about Him never having a beginning, never having an end, my point is this, that some of the intellectual minds that you talked to yesterday and that you may yet talk to, an intellectual mind today has to have a, a, a very practical, obvious answer for everything. You tell them that our God is eternal, they have to know what that is. And you say, well, he never had a beginning. Well, that won't compute with them. You've got to give them an answer. It takes faith for us to believe in eternal life. Be, never started, never ends. It takes faith. And we accept that. It takes faith to believe in the Trinity. That's what the Bible teaches. And yet an intellectual mind, a highly intellectual mind, say, no, 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 you can't do that. So you see, they have to get off of that pedestal and they have to come down and say, I understand. It's by faith. And so when you're talking to somebody, realize that you're kind of up against a barrier there. You have to get down to where it's practical. And we don't have answers for absolutely everything. We live by faith. So as we sit here today, one final thing, Jesus Christ is not yet fully King of kings and Lord of lords. And you say, what do you mean? He is indeed the very Son of God. He is indeed co-equal with God. He does indeed sit on the throne with God His Father, waiting for the command of His Heavenly Father to go forth and conquer His enemies but he hasn't gotten that command yet. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 for one last scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> I am not trying to take him down. I am trying to give you the full picture here. I want you to understand that he is the heir apparent. He is in fact... King of kings and Lord of lords. He has the title of that. And it, and it means his title is a title of power and authority and all of that. But Hebrews chapter 8, I'm no, sorry, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, Thou, God, <clears throat> hast put all things in subjection under his Jesus' feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now... We see not yet all things put under Him. His enemies have not been destroyed. He's in charge of all other things. Absolutely. But He's not destroyed His enemies. That time's coming. He will do that. And it says, but we do, nine, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. This He was made lower for a period of time. Made lower than the angels for the suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every 
man. He has not yet acted to subdue all rebellion against him. He, this will happen and in due time. And when he has done it, and he will, as we have read, it is then that he will indeed be King of kings and Lord of lords, both in reality and in practice. He's just not there in practice right now, if you understand what I'm saying. But he is King of kings and Lord of lords in reality. Absolutely. So while we have the breath, <clears throat> let's serve him with our mind, with our will, with our emotions, with our body, with our soul, with our spirit, with our entire being. Let's serve him as he truly is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our master, our sovereign, our savior, all of those things and more besides. For he's coming soon. I believe that with all my heart, my dearly beloved. I believe that, and I want to be ready, and I want to join him perhaps in the air. It just might happen. God bless you all. Let's bow our heads, please. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, once again, we are delighted to have the opportunity to study your word and to share with other believers. What a joy it is, Father, to look into the, between the lids of this book, and we call it a book respectfully. It is your communication to us. It, is, it tells us what is necessary for life and godliness. It tells us about our awful past. It tells us about our glorious future. And Father, we just want to be a part of that. We want to be, we are, we believe fully that we are part of the bride, the church, even today. And we want to encourage everyone here to be faithful. Walk alongside us, Father, when we have difficulties. When sometimes the load gets pretty heavy and hard to carry, would you pick us up and carry us with the burden? Because you can hold us in your strong arms and you can carry us through anything. Help us to meet those challenges of life and help us also to be a light to others around and, and to share with them the hope that we have within our hearts. It's available to anyone and everyone and help us to be tools, meet for the Master's use that we could help to share the love and the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for all these blessings that we Enjoy. We confess that we're not worthy of them, but we thank you and we want to show our thanks. We want to demonstrate our thanks by serving you. We love you. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen.